Join Global Genes in Irvine, California, September 14th and 15th for the 6th Annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit. The event brings together patients, caregivers, advocates, and rare disease stakeholders to learn, connect, share, and partner. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2017 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Simon Wheatcroft lost his ability to see at the age of 17, the result of a rare genetic disorder. After becoming blind, though, Wheatcroft developed a penchant for running. Starting on a soccer field where he ran between goalposts, he graduated to public roadways. Since those early outings where he had sometimes painful encounters with road signs and other obstacles, Wheatcroft has learned to adapt, use technology and his other senses to become an ultra-marathoner. We spoke to Wheatcroft about the loss of his sight, how he has been able to adapt, and what he's learned about himself in the process. Simon, thanks for joining us. Oh, that's my pleasure. Good to be here. We're going to talk about retinitis pigmentosa, a, a rare genetic disorder that has blinded you, how you learned not to just cope with the condition, but become an ultra marathoner despite your loss of vision. But let's start with the disease itself and your experience of losing your sight. What is retinitis pigmentosa? How rare is it? When were you diagnosed? And what's been the progression of the disease for you? Um, retinitis pigmentosa is uh, basically where the rods in your eye over time die off. So I was born with you know, pretty decent sight, to be honest. And I didn't even realize I was losing my sight until I was told I was losing my sight. I even, you know, as a sort of early teenager, sort of 12, 13, used to play cricket. And I was the batsman, and I always used to think that the balls were really quick, so I always used to lose sight of the ball. But it turned out they weren't quick, and I just couldn't see. And it was around that time that I went for a routine sort of eye checkup and to notice that the rods in my eyes were deteriorating. So the sent me to the hospital and quickly got a diagnosis of retinitis pigmentosa. And that's when I really started to sort of notice the effect. And the effects initially, you know, you begin to lose your peripheral vision, night blindness. So in dim areas, I was going to just struggle to see. And then as time went on, sort of around the age of 17 or 18, my vision had deteriorated enough to be registered blind. And then as the years have progressed, vision's deteriorated and now I'm classed as just with light perception. And do you have the ability to detect light or objects at all? Yeah, um, I'm classed as just above light perception. So I can tell light and dark. And when you're just above light perception, you know, you've still got movement. And sometimes if light's just right, you might be able to detect an object. But you, you basically lose all detail. You know, if I hold my hand in front of my face, I, I can't see my hand unless it's blocking a light source. And equally, you know, when you're out and about, you can tell 
it's a particular object if it hasn't been blocking a light bulb. Before you took up running, you decided to climb a mountain with your, your then-girlfriend, later your wife. Though you got engaged on that climb, the, the climb itself didn't go well. What happened, and, and how did that affect your approach and determination to climbing and, and running? Yeah, the idea was to climb that mountain. the first sort of mountain we'd ever decided to climb, and the idea was to get to the top and propose to my girlfriend, and yeah, it just turned out to be far harder than I'd ever imagined it. And it wasn't because it was physically incredibly demanding or wasn't good enough. It was just trying to do it without sight. And, and this was not the first time I'd ever tried to do something a little unusual without sight. And it was just too difficult. I was tripping and stumbling constantly. And, you know, that begins to build up and, and beat you down. And, you know, by the time I got halfway, I just thought, there's no way I can get to the top of this. You know, I need to call it quits and, you know, quitting something just because you couldn't see was something that was incredibly difficult to live with and, you know, it stayed with me for a long time and I suppose it continued to stay with me and that became a driving force that I didn't really want to quit doing anything just because I couldn't see anyone. Well, what led you to decide to take up running a pursuit that would seem where vision would be a, a critical asset? Um, two things. Um, I had a lot of spare time on my hands and running was cheap. And, and that, that was it, really. It was, it was quite simple. Um, I was waiting for university to start. I was doing a bit of a career change. And I've been used to working a full-time job. And now I just have so much time on my hands. I'm like, oh, what am I going to do with all this time? And, you know, becoming a student, it meant I didn't really have much money. But running, you know, it's quite accessible. It doesn't cost a lot of money, you don't need a lot of equipment, you just need some running shoes. I thought, well, maybe this is something that, you know, can occupy my time and give me something to do while I wait for university to start. And it was as simple as that. I just got fed up of not doing anything, and this was a chance to get out and do something. Well, uh, how does someone who can't see go about taking up running? Did you start on a close course, have the assistance of someone running with you? Um, at that point in time, the house that I lived at was really close to a soccer pitch. And by really close, I mean it was behind my house. Um, so I just headed out to the soccer pitch behind my house and I just ran up and down the soccer pitch. And it was during that time on the soccer pitch I was using uh, an app on my phone called Runkeeper. And what was interesting about that app is it was the first app to give information through audio. So rather than having to look at a screen, it says you've run a mile and this is how fast you're going it automatically always gave that information to the audience. So I always knew how far I'd run and how quick I was. And that just acted as a great motivator that, you know, I was at a point where it was becoming difficult to access information because I didn't know Braille. You know, um, I still didn't have many audio books or anything back then. And voiceover had literally just come out and just, just come out on the iPhone. and crap for the iPhone 3GS voiceover, which is a screen reader. So access to information was really tough and this seemed great that I now had access to this piece of information and I used that information constantly and decided to see how much I could do with a simple piece of information. Well, how do you go from running on a, a soccer field to running on public roads, which can be quite dangerous? There's not only 
traffic, but obstacles such as road signs and, and, and lampposts and potholes. How did you learn to navigate obstacles and, and were you ever unsuccessful? Um, it was a gradual transition. It's not like one day I went from the soccer pitch and the following day I was running the open road. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't that easy and that simple. Um, after the soccer pitch, I started running on a closed road. So the closed road was a perfectly straight piece of road. It was blocked at both ends. No cars could get down. Then there was yellow lines on the side of the road. And the yellow lines, um, you could basically feel them through your shoes. So I realized that I could just run up and down these yellow lines and feel exactly where I was. So as soon as you left the line, you realize you deviated. So you could just move back and make sure you could feel the lines again. And, you know, that was, that was cool. I got a real great sense of freedom and, you know, that I was pushing the boundaries of possibilities. But essentially, a straight piece of road, it's boring. So it took, you know, a few weeks until the boredom was beginning to really get on top of me. And that's when I just thought, maybe I can just run on the open road. And at the top of the closed road, um, there's a dual carriageway. So I just stepped out into the dual carriageway, uh, dual carriageway one day, told myself that the cars were moving. I just ran down the side of the road. Now, thankfully, there was double yellow lines still. So again, I could just use the double yellow line and follow it down. And over time, I just increased the distance I would run a little bit further. And yeah, you know, I did run into the road signs and lampposts. And, and things like that but that didn't happen as often as you might imagine and you know you hit something once you remember exactly where it is <laughs> and the way I was learning where everything was was the feeling of the foot paired with the distance markers from Runkeeper and I was learning this particular route and what was really interesting about this particular route as well is um, essentially the sidewalk that I was running on there was no need for anyone to walk on it because it went nowhere so they built it, but then all the infrastructure that it was there to support was never finished. So that meant that it was a piece of pavement, a sidewalk that no one knew. So there was a few human obstacles, generally other runners, but the best, you know, could learn exactly where it was and, and be fine. And there's one thing you can't account for, and this is something that, you know, you always have to convince yourself that things don't change, that this course is static but unfortunately you know that's not true things do change over time you know bushes grow trees grow they end up being in the past and often head and face height which is difficult but perhaps the hardest thing was um one day there's been an accident on the, on the road and i didn't know this and i was running down there you know late in the day and there was a burnt out car on the sidewalk, unable to see it, ran straight into it, and uh, part of the car went into my shin, another part flashed through my knee, and then as I put my arms out, got myself falling forward, it went into my arm and flashed all the way down my arm. So, you know, there's definitely been a few incidents, but, you know, it's probably only gone wrong, I don't know, 15 times, and there are a lot of runs out there. You mentioned the running app. Have you used other technology to help you stay oriented on where you are and where you're going? What have you used, and, and how has that worked out for you? Yeah, 
have used a lot of technology now. Um, initially, you know, it was Runkeeper, and, and Runkeeper was fantastic. That's what gave me the freedom and the realization that I could use technology to do these things. And then, you know, I managed to get my hands on things like accessible treadmills. I was using a treadmill from Technogym. Um, fantastic, accessible. I, I used another gym, uh, another treadmill, a Nordic track. That was uh, that was reasonable good. You just had to memorize beats. And then I decided to see, well, you know, I've managed to do all this training well, and maybe I could compete well. well. So what I decided to do is uh, I picked a race out in the desert, and then I worked with IBM to create a sort of custom navigation system that would work for a blind person to be able to navigate in desert. And, and the way that works is navigating the desert is relatively simple. You just need to make sure you're running in the correct direction. So we created a system that understood sort of bearings and compass readings and as soon as you deviated from the correct bearing it would correct you using a little audio prompt, just a little beep, and put you back in line. So yeah, managed to create a custom piece of technology to, to do that. And now, you know, looking forward, uh, looking to do the new up marathon this year and uh, do that solo and Again, leading on technology quite heavily, been uh, working with a company called Wearworks and created a haptic-based navigation system. And the way it works is basically it plots out a virtual corridor, and as soon as you deviate from that virtual corridor, it uses little haptic vibrations to nudge you back into the correct corridor, and you know it's reasonably accurate. You take one step out of the corridor, and it alerts you. So, you know, that should be really cool and helping to actually take that sort of technology and make that sort of widely available for anybody to be able to navigate any environment. Yeah, lots of technology. So uh, as you run, how much of this is memory? How much of it is technology? And, and how much is reliance on other senses? Um, combination of all those things, really. You know, um, initially, it was, feeling and memory and the technology was a prompt for memory so all the technology initially did was reminded me of what should be happening so for example there used to be certain turns where I'd need to turn 90 degrees right so let's say one keeper would prompt me saying I've run 0.6 miles I've got okay right after 0.6 miles I know the road should dip down so then, you know, I'm a bit more aware of what's going on and waiting for this little dip in the road. And then after that little dip, is a severe dip. So when that severe dip happens, I've got two steps to turn right, otherwise I enter the road. And that's how I did it. You know, so one keeper was a reminder. Then I'd have to remember what happens at that point in time and then use the feeling underfoot to sort of act upon it. Then moving forward, um, the way the navigation system worked for the desert, I'd obviously never run in the desert, ever. So that was all, I just had to truly believe that this piece of technology would, you know, would not go wrong. I was always unsure I was going in the correct direction. And then looking forward to New York, while I have run New York before, again, I'm going to be solely reliant on this piece of technology to ensure that I'm following the course correctly. And I don't want to run into any, uh, railings or any other obstacles. We're also doing some kind of object avoidance system and so that meant to run as well. Well, you mentioned the desert. Let, let's talk about the ultra marathons. In, in May of 
2016, you ran the Four Desert Marathon in Namibia, a seven-day, 250-kilometer race. That's a race where I imagine you are running on a, a very uneven and unpredictable surface. What was that like, and how do you navigate that course? Um, it was tough. It was really tough. I say now that I injured myself so badly on that run that I never actually made it to the end. Um, the terrain is difficult because I don't know what each step is going to hold. Um, you take a lot of impact uh, to your knees and ankles. And I'd experienced this previously a um, few years prior I ran from Boston to New York. I ran 260 miles. And, and the main issue with that one is because you don't know what each step holds, even if you're using a guide on it, they can't tell you there's a little bump here, a little bit there. You end up taking a lot of damage to things like the Achilles, the knees, the ankles. And in the desert, that was just like a whole new world. I was taking a lot of damage. And the desert is perhaps not the surface a lot of the people may imagine it to be. It's not as much loose sand as you may believe. It's things like dry riverbeds, rocks, compacted sand, a bit of loose sand. And yeah, I would never know you know, what's going to be happening next, if the next step might be a bit of a dip down or, you know, a severe dip down. And I just took a lot of damage. And then I got to the point where the damage was relatively bad. I was beginning to lose lateral movement in my left leg. And well, I certainly couldn't put any weight on it. And it just became very difficult to the point where if I carried on, I you know, running, I was going to get in my running career. So, yeah, didn't quite make it to the end. Thanks to uh, damage taking. We should note, you, you've actually worked with a, a number of technology companies to develop devices that could assist blind runners. You, you made reference to one earlier, but what's the state of that? And, and do you think there are things that could really be useful and helpful to, to people who are blind who want to run? Yeah, I think it's important to make some distinctions here. Um, if you don't have light perception, uh, the, the technology I've been I'm working on currently will work for you, but you'd need to be incredibly daring, and it wouldn't be difficult. So the technology I'm working on right now would definitely help people with sort of light perception and greater. Because what we're trying to do is create navigation systems that are very subtle, easy to understand. It can help you navigate in very tight environments. So if you deviate even, like I said, one step, it corrects that one step ever. And I think that's the level of correction you need sometimes when you're using a pair. Now, navigation systems that say, in 150 meters turn right, in, in 200 meters turn left, are great. But when you can't see, sometimes you need something far more fine-grained. So that's what I'm currently working on. Can we get it incredibly fine-grained? And I believe that will help people. And even, you know, outside of running, you know, these devices are things you can use, you know, along with a cane or along with a guide dog to help you navigate from point A to point B to point C within a very tight, specific corridor. Thinking back to when you first learned you were losing your sight has what you've been able to do surprised you in any way is there 
something you'd hope other people with disabilities could learn from your experience? Um, I think when I initially lost my sight, you know, sight is certainly a key sense, and it's hard to imagine a world without vision. Uh, perhaps especially being born with sight. I'd learned to do everything in my life with sight. And now it's a case of I need to relearn and reimagine how to do most things. And that was difficult. It was a long process. It certainly wasn't overnight. It was, it was years in the making. And yeah, when I first lost my sight, I really didn't imagine things like the running. You know, it, I think it's still hard even to imagine today that, you know, I've managed to do these things. You know, someday, you know, he struggled to do a simple task because he can't see. Just saying, why is this task so hard? I've managed to do some great things. And, you know, you've got to take each day as a new little challenge. You've got to adapt every day. And you're still learning. You know, hopefully we'll be able to get to a point where the technology, the navigation, is phenomenal and I can do bigger and grander and, and greater things but every day is the opportunity to fight for a new challenge. Simon Weedcroft, storyteller, technologist, adventurer and inclusivity consultant. Simon, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, no, thank you. If you'd like to meet Simon Weedcroft or learn more about his experiences, join us for the Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit September 14th and 15th in Irvine, California. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2017 summit. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.